You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Thanks, Tracy. Please do keep your Bibles open if you've got one handy. Uh, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at DPC. And it's great to be opening up the Word of God with you. Uh, there's an outline on the welcome card as well, if, if you'd find that helpful to follow along online. Uh, let's pray as we think about God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this uh, letter that Paul, Silas and Timothy wrote to the church in Thessalonica. And we pray that uh, all these years later that it would speak to us today, help us to know you better and how to live well as your people. Amen. I have a complicated relationship with Facebook at the moment. And as I recount this, I'm sure some of you will nod in agreement and others of you will shake your head going, geez, Adam, we know you're old now because you're still on Facebook. Now, it's complicated because I like sharing about my life and having people know what I'm up to, uh, sharing thoughts and reading people's comments and response. So one of the fun things about our trip to America during my long service leave getting to share our adventures with people back home. Uh, in fact, I'm excited to say that our friends from America are here today. See, I did manage to get you in there. Uh, but every time I post on Facebook, I kind of wonder, like, is it the right thing to do or not? Are people going to get upset or offended? Uh, might they feel left out? Might they feel I'm a hypocrite because, you know, I'm only maybe posting the good things and not the bad things happening in my life? And then I worry that I'm just doing it for the likes and for the boost to my ego and so often I just don't post because it's complicated. I guess what I'm really confessing here to you all is that I'm actually a people pleaser. I want people to like me. And the thing is with people pleasing is it's crushing. You know, I never feel that I've done enough to make enough people happy enough with me. And that's why I'm so grateful for 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 to 16, that we're looking at today. See, over the years, it's helped me to reframe my approach to people, particularly when it comes to ministry. And so I pray that it'll be helpful for you as well. In this passage, Paul, Silas and Timothy speak about their experience of ministry in the city of Thessalonica. And this passage is not so much about the content of their message, but more about how they went about sharing the message. It's about their conduct and their motives. There are lessons that we can learn here for us about how we each uh, serve in our church, but also these ideas can help us think about how we relate to one another, how we conduct ourselves in our day-to-day -day lives. And it all begins with being clear on whose opinion counts most. Once we figure this out, then the actions that should flow out of that become more obvious. So let's get right to it. Our first point is this, be a God pleaser, not a people pleaser. You might remember last week we had Acts chapter 17 read out. We learned that these three missionaries had a bit of a mixed experience in Thessalonica. Some of the locals became Christians, very exciting, but then others strongly opposed the visitors and chased them out of town. Paul was very distressed about this, about leaving these new believers so abruptly, which is why he wrote this very letter that we're looking at today. And so Paul wanted to encourage this new church. 
And one of the ways in which Paul does this is by defending his visit to them. Now, why would he need to do that? Well, it seems that some people were doubting the sincerity of his message and therefore the validity of these new Christians' faith. If you've got a Bible open, have a look at verse 1 where Paul writes this. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. In verse 3 he says, For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. And then verses 5 and 6, You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else. It seems that people were questioning the motives of Paul, Silas and Timothy. They thought the missionaries were trying to trick the locals, that they were greedy, only seeking praise for themselves. The people making these claims were probably the jealous Jews of Acts 17, the guys who had chased Paul away. And so once they dealt with him, they turned their attention to this cult that these people had set up in their city. They said about unsettling and undermining the Thessalonian Christians. I imagine a conversation between a Jew and a new Christian could have gone something like this. G'day, Jason. How's your day been? Yeah, not too bad, Zachariah. You still following that loser, Paul? Some teacher, hey? Sets up a church and then shoots through, probably only in it for the money or the fame, no doubt a scam. You really should choose more carefully who you listen to. Well, I don't know about that. Like, we hear that God's wrath is coming against us and if we believe in Jesus, we can be saved. What? Did Paul tell you that? Why would you trust him? Why would our God save a Gentile like you? Paul's obviously made that up and that's why he's disappeared. Maybe the conversation didn't go exactly like that, but you kind of get the idea, right? It's likely that the Thessalonian Christians were being challenged. See, their unbelieving friends were trying to discredit Paul as a way to discredit their newfound faith. Have you ever had that happen to you? Friends send you memes or articles they find online about another Christian leader's moral failure or dodgy things that the church has done. Or maybe your family question the motives of those who have shared the gospel with you. You know, they warn you that, you know, look out because most Christians are just in it for the money or the power. So don't get too involved in church. Don't get too involved in CU. It makes sense that Paul would want to defend himself. You see, his preaching of the gospel didn't spring from error or impure motives. He wasn't trying to trick them or get money. So what was it that motivated Paul? We see the answer in verse 4. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. There you go. Paul and his friends were trying to be God-pleasers, not people-pleasers. And one of the ways we can know this is true is because he wasn't trying to make life easier for himself. He wasn't trying to gain followers for himself, money for his wallet, women for his bed. Rather, Paul and his friends were motivated by a desire to please God. 
How else could they write the words in verse 2? Check them out. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. In the city of Philippi, Paul and Silas were stripped naked and beaten in public because they were sharing the gospel. They were then thrown into jail. Could you imagine that happening to you? Can you think of anything that would motivate you to endure that kind of treatment? And what did Paul and Silas do when they got released from jail? Well, they travelled over to the city of Thessalonica and started all over again. Now, does that sound like the actions of con artists? Does that sound like the actions of people pleasers? I mean, there's only two things that could drive men to do that, delusion or a desire to please God. Paul cared most about God's opinion and so it motivated him to serve faithfully. And so that makes him a great model of how to live to please God even when being a Christian is tough. We're not missionaries in ancient Rome. So what does this look like for us? Well, I think it relates to how we participate in church, how we love one another and even how we go about our daily lives at work, at school, at home. We have to put effort into being God-pleasers and not people-pleasers. So to see how this works, let's reflect on some of the bad motives that Paul lists and that he rejects. People-pleasers can be motivated by comfort and acceptance. They don't want to endure suffering, insult or strong opposition. If sharing the truth will hurt or make life tough, then they'll avoid the truth or cover it up. They'd rather have people like them than suffer. It's just easier to join in on gossip or telling dirty jokes with friends, tone down the Christian beliefs in case it upsets anyone, kind of agree, yeah, kind of all religions are basically the same. People-pleasers can also be motivated by greed or impurity. They try to mislead people so they can manipulate them or hurt them. Maybe they use trickery where they distort the gospel or misrepresent it. They might flatter people and say what the crowds want to hear. They might put on a mask to cover up greed, maybe pretending to be poor in need so that people will give them money. Do you see yourself in any of these? I know I do. I see myself. So let's push it even further and think about church. When we're serving on a ministry team, we might be tempted to please people. Like in verse 6, this could be about receiving praise from others. You know, we serve in a way that draws attention to ourselves. You know, don't like the hidden jobs or the obscure roles or the menial tasks. We want others to see how wonderfully gifted we are. Or we might serve in a way that's less about giving honour to God and more about doing what's popular. I could be tempted to change my preaching so I avoid saying hard things and instead I flatter you all and tell you, hey, look, you're all perfect just the way you are, so just keep being you, keep doing it. You're already spiritually mature. I could say, well, you know, you're all a good-looking bunch of people, which you are, but I don't say that to flatter you. I say that because you are. Or do I? As a people pleaser, sometimes we might avoid doing what is right and biblical. 
And so instead, we do what's easy and palatable for others. You know, scratch the itchy ears, oil the squeaky wheel. And in the end, I think being a people pleaser is selfish. It's about me. It's about what people will give me, what I'll get out of it. You, know, you might just be after comfort and peace, and so you'll say and do things that will keep people happy. Or maybe you're after their money or a cheap deal or free labour or more votes or a boost to your ego. But how can we stop that? I mean, how can we stop being people pleasers? Because after all, if we stop, won't we miss out then? Like miss out on love and security and happiness? I think it comes down to where we get our identity from. You see, our identity is shaped by the people whose opinion of us counts most. You think about most young children, their identity is shaped by their parents. You know, what their parents think is really important. Maybe for married couples, it's their spouse. Maybe at work, it's your boss, it's your online followers, your friends at school. And so where we draw our identity from affects our behaviour. So how do we break this cycle? Well, we need to get our identity from God. And so this develops by caring most about what God thinks. If God's opinion is most important to us, it will shape our identity and our behaviour. The gospel will be at the heart of who we are because that's at the heart of who God is. If you think about it, we'll be a lot like Paul. You can see in verse 4 that Paul, Silas and Timothy wanted to please God who tests our hearts. Now there's an ominous thought. Is your heart 100% pure when you serve others? As you sit here today, have you had any uncharitable thoughts towards others sitting around you? I mean, do you think that maybe God knowing your heart is actually bad news? Well, it isn't if you first accepted his good news. God's good news is that Jesus has come and served us so that we can know God as our loving Father who always delights in us. Jesus sought to please God in all that he did, which meant sometimes making people unhappy even in the midst of loving them. He did what was best for others rather than seeking praise from them or seeking wealth or power for himself. He gave up his comforts and reputation so that he could serve, ultimately giving his life on the cross. And as Jesus died, it was almost as if God was peering into all of our hearts and seeing the bad motives and the mess and the yuck that was inside there and and basically judging Jesus for what was in our hearts. He was paying the price for that. That's what it means in chapter 1, verse 10, that Jesus saves us from the coming wrath. One day there'll be a reckoning for the things that we've thought and done. But Jesus has paid that for anyone who will believe in him now. That's the good news. If you're a Christian, when God looks at you, he doesn't see you as you are. He sees you as he's declared you to be. He's declared you to be forgiven, to be spotless, to be pure, to be holy, to be perfect as his son Jesus is perfect. That's why you should care most about what God thinks and not about what other people think.
And that leads to a real freedom. A freedom to serve people rather than to use them. A freedom to not be shaped or controlled by other people's opinions. You see, people-pleasing can crush us, but Jesus came to crush people-pleasing so that we can instead live as God pleases. Let me give you an example of how this might work. Let's say you're serving a church today, supper team, welcoming team, pack-up team, whatever it is. And it's been a rough day, right? You've felt unappreciated by people during the service. Uh, Everything is a bit of a mess, kind of either literally or perhaps metaphorically. And so you complain to one of your team members and, and they turn to you and they say, well, actually we're serving Jesus because he wants us to love people even when it's hard. And now you're crushed. You know you've had impure motives for serving today. And you know now that this person knows that you've had bad motives for serving. And you know that God knows because guess what? God tests our hearts. And the shame and embarrassment compounds and you are crushed. Now you could either double down on your frustration and try to convince your friend that you are right. Or you could try to even backpedal and soften what you said. You didn't really mean it. Or if you're more concerned with pleasing the God who is already well pleased with you, then you could say, yes, you're right. I'm sorry. Like, my heart is a mess today. Would you please pray for me? Now, that might seem impossible for some of you. But that's the sort of freedom we get when our identity is shaped by the gospel. You see, even when we have poor motives, God does peer into our heart and he loves us and he forgives us and he even empowers us to keep working on our motives. He's continuing to change us. So we have the freedom to keep trying. Well, hopefully you're all on board with the idea that we need to please God, not people. But that might raise a question in your mind. Are we ever allowed to please people? I mean, should I actually do the opposite of they, what they want because that shows that I care about God and not about people? Should I try to displease them? Isn't that what bigots do to justify their hatred of others, saying, well, this is what pleases God, is to annoy as many people as possible? You see, sometimes it's easier to think that if a people pleaser cares about making people happy, then... A God-pleaser doesn't care about people at all. Maybe it even means being a people-hater. And so we might see this in some people, in some people, in the way they go about sharing the gospel or engaging in the public sphere. You know, unbelievers are seen as the enemy. You have to be defeated on behalf of God. and The ends justify the means. And so you can shout and scream and condemn these people as much as you like and then God will be well pleased with you. That's not what Jesus taught. When asked about what the greatest commandment is, what is it that God expects of us? What does he want? He summed up all of the law like this. This is Mark 12, verses 30 and 31. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So the way to please God is to love him and love others. Pretty simple. 
Loving people is a way to please God. And when you live to please God, you'll actually start to see ways that you can better love others. That's exactly what Paul and his friends did. In fact, they spoke of their manner amongst the Thessalonians as being like that of parents. Look at verse 7. We'll pick up sort of about halfway through. He says, Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? A mother tenderly holding her baby, feeding her baby milk. Now, it's not like Paul actually picked up the Thessalonians and gave them a drink. Rather, these, these Christian leaders were gentle and kind. They protected the new believers. They carefully considered their needs. They sought to be nurturing. And they weren't only mothers, they also acted like fathers. Have a look at verses 11 and 12. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. It's another wonderful picture, isn't it? A father lovingly leading his children. Paul, Silas and Timothy were concerned with the maturity of the Thessalonians. They wanted these Christians to grow in wisdom and godliness. So they set healthy boundaries. They gave clear instructions. They showed tenderness and support while also pushing them onwards in their walk with Jesus. These three men acted like a mother and a father to this baby church. And there's something in this picture for all Christian leaders to consider. Whether you're a pastor or run a PA team, whether you're a gospel community leader or department leader, we are to treat those we lead with a mix of tenderness and instruction. And there's an element of Paul's love for the Thessalonians that we can all aspire to. Have a look at verses 8 and 9. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. Do you notice that in sharing the gospel with the Thessalonians, these men also shared their lives with them. Uh, in the King James Version of the Bible, it says that they shared their own souls. Or in the English Standard Version of the Bible, it says they shared their own selves. It's another beautiful picture for us. Paul shared his soul, his very essence with the Thessalonians. He, he cared for them and opened up his heart to them. But he also shared his life with them. Now, he was practical. He spent time with them. He worked amongst them, did daily tasks with them. This is a good reminder of what it looks like to love people. You know, we can share our lives and our souls. Now, I know those two words might mean the same thing in your mind, but I think they can, mean help, they can be useful in helping us to find balance between merely just spending time with people doing tasks on the one hand and, and only ever having kind of deep conversations on the other hand. Perhaps the best way to explain this is to tell you my own story. In 1999, there you are, picture of me, I moved to Melbourne to study science at La Trobe University. I lived in Glen College, one of the residential colleges at La Trobe. Now, I'd grown up in a Christian home, but I didn't believe in God at the time. I thought the Bible was made up, but I still tried to live a moral life like my parents had taught me. 
Orientation week at college was pretty hard. In fact, it was pretty disorientating because most people just spend all their time drinking alcohol and doing crazy things, which I wasn't up for. So I was a bit lonely and I was also a bit awkward, so that made interacting awkward. So the first real friend I made was a girl named Erica. She wasn't drinking either, and so I was relieved to have like, perhaps my first sober conversation for the week. And the first time we met was at a formal college dinner, and afterwards we kind of went out of the dining hall and sat outside and talked for hours. It got a bit cold, and so Erica offered me her jacket, which I took thankfully. Now, that should have been a clue that this girl was a little bit different. Like, she just met me, yet she was giving me her jacket to wear. By the end of the night, I'd found out that she was a Christian, and she invited me to the, Bible, uh, the residential college Bible study. So reluctantly, kind of out of loneliness and maybe a little bit of curiosity, I went along to the Bible study group. I did not enjoy it. It was pretty confronting. I knew very little about the Bible. I totally freaked out. I didn't go back the next week. In fact, true story, when someone came around to invite me and take me over, I turned my light off and sat in the dark until they went away. <laughs> but I still spent time with Erica. We ate meals together, we hung out, I met her boyfriend and her family, she met my family, and we became close friends. And slowly, bit by bit, she shared the gospel with me. She taught me about the Bible. And I would listen because she was gentle and respectful. And I knew that she genuinely cared about me. I, I did eventually go back to Bible study and perhaps it wasn't as bad as I first thought it was. I still felt like I knew nothing, but the people there were kind, they were patient, they were lots of fun to spend time with. So I became a Christian at the end of that first year. Erica and I stayed on in college, and the following year we welcomed some new people to the Glen College Bible Study. One of those students was a young Tracy, who's now my wife. So the group grew, I grew. But let me read out verse 8 again but with some modifications. Erica loved me so much that she was delighted to share with me not only the gospel of God, but her life, her soul as well. Wouldn't it be great if you could have a story like that? Who are you sharing your soul with? Who do you invest time into? When you share the gospel with family and friends, do you share your life as well? Paul shows us that when we live to please God, we will overflow with love for others, which will encourage Christians and it will draw non-Christians in, enabling them to meet Jesus too. But of course, this can take a bit of planning on our part. We can be so busy we never actually see other people. We can be super involved in church and interact with lots of people doing lots of different tasks, but we never actually connect with anyone. We never really open up. Perhaps we spend so much time talking about ourselves, we don't actually listen to others, or perhaps we only ever listen and never share about ourselves. So Paul, Silas and Timothy remind us in this passage of the importance of connecting relationally with those we minister to. So why not consider today who you can invite over for a meal or catch up over coffee? In fact, why not make the most of supper tonight? 
You could say, hey, tell me a good thing about the last week and tell me a hard thing about the last week. Or even dig deeper and go, how did the sermon challenge you today? Talk about some real things, some important things. Talk about yourself and listen to them. Now, before we wrap this all up, I do want to acknowledge that I haven't looked at verses 13 to 16. They're great. I commend them to you. You should read them later. All I'll say is that Paul uses these verses as another way to defend the integrity of his ministry. When he shared the good news of God about Jesus with the Thessalonians, they received it not as the word of man, but as the word of God. And these believers were so transformed by it that they were able to stand up against strong persecution from their unbelieving neighbours. Well, as I said at the start, I have a complicated relationship with Facebook. On a more serious note, I have a complicated relationship with ministry. As many of you know, it's been a tough few weeks for our church. I've sought to be the pastor that, I, that, I, that, I, um, that all of you need, but I know that I've fallen short in many ways. And, you know, I hear this passage's call to be like a nursing mother and an urging father, and it, it weighs on me. So please pray for me. Pray for Aaron, pray for Ken, pray for Adam. You know, I love you and I want to serve you well. We all do. I love you. I love our church. But sometimes I struggle to separate people-pleasing from God-pleasing. And I want you all to like me, but this passage challenges me to worry more about what God thinks and to ensure that I'm loving you all well so that rather than liking me, because that's actually not the goal, is it? I want you to love God and to love each other. That's our goal. And so my prayer for you, for the church that I love, is that we would be assured of our secure identity as God's beloved children. And rather than seeking to please others, we would seek to love others because that's what pleases God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful reminder that we have been set free from pleasing people. That ultimately we only live our lives, do what we do for an audience of one, that's you. And you are our loving Heavenly Father and with us you are well pleased because of what Jesus has done. And so may we go and serve in the freedom that the gospel brings us seeking to please you, to love you, and to love others. Amen.